goodness gracious, everyone, it's time. Are you ready? Is everyone ready? For? For the first episode of our class. It's here. <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah, that, that little thing. Yes. Can you believe it? <laughs> this is crazy. I cannot believe it. We are, we are recording an episode of our new podcast for Lincoln Center. It's so exciting, everyone. Welcome. This is Art Class. My name is Rocky Jones. I'm here with my two amazing co-hosts, Lee Bynum, Paige Reynolds. How are the two of you today? Fabulous. Fabulous. Excited for class. My notebook is out. My pen Ooh. is ready. <laughs> Pencils are sharpened. <laughs> and Leah, are you ready for class? Same. <laughs> oh, good. I'm so glad. Well, this is Lincoln Center's brand new podcast, all about the arts and arts education. And we could not be more excited to be here and to bring you all the news that you can use um, with <laughs> about art and artists um, that are sitting at the intersection of beauty and innovation and all of the amazing things that are happening out there in arts education um, because it is so important um, to remember that arts and arts education are and always have been and always will be at the center of American life. Mm -hmm. And what better place than Lincoln Center to have that conversation? Am I right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so you all are probably wondering who we are. Sometimes That's funny because we're wondering who they are. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and some of you might remember us from a little show that we did um, back in the day when we all worked together at Minnesota Opera called The Score. Uh, if you're not familiar, go ahead on and check it out. It's it's cute. <laughs> um, but, you know, the score was, you know, taking a look at opera and classical music through uh, the lens of three Black queer opera administrators, arts administrators, and really looking at the industry through an anti-racist and anti-oppressive lens. And so art class is really all about sort of expanding that view, looking at um, what's happening uh, in the arts today and how we can make the arts industry a much more inclusive and equitable space, um, especially for people who look and love like us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but of course, everyone is invited to the conversation, um, needless to say, but I, I think we should probably introduce ourselves and oh, let people idea. get to know us, you know, instead of yeah. me just sort of lecturing. Although I guess this is our class. <laughs> so that would make sense. But Paige, let the people know all about you. I want to know all about you. So I was born in, no, I'm not, I'm not going to start there. But, you know, I am from Detroit. I met these wonderful folks and the many other places I have lived after that. I'm currently speaking from New Orleans and I am an artist. I am an organizer. I am a birth worker. Um, I am 
your weird cousin who does tarot cards and astrology and all of that. I'm, I'm that one. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, a lover of the arts in, in all kinds of ways, arts and culture. Um, and I am really excited about how we get to just bring more of our full selves to this podcast, to art class, you know, Minnesota Opera, where we all met, we first all intersected, mm. <laughs> you know, the score was uh, an awesome thing that I'm proud of. And, and we were, idea. and, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm just saying. That, that, that little fact that was, little fact yeah, that was my idea. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we were, we were talking about classical music. Uh, of course, we were at an opera company. That was that was the lane. Um, but we are all so expansive and have so many interests and are culture nerds in... <laughs> <laughs> we're all culture nerds and it's kind of cute how it's all in our own way too. So I'm excited to bring all of that to the show. Yeah. And hey. How about you, Lee? Tell the people who you are. Well, uh, let's see. Uh, Lee Bynum. 24, um, Aquarian. <laughs> 24 what? <laughs> Touche. Um, Aquarian, New Yorker, um, artists of different kinds and repository for absolutely useless information and lots of very useless information. But that's part of what makes me excited about the opportunity to do this show. Um, the score was was really fantastic. We got to talk to kind of everybody who I ever wanted to talk to. In classical music, we really got to hit every single topic and it was incredibly satisfying and interesting and challenging and one or two times a little scary. Um, and it kind of left me feeling like, what about all the other parts of the arts that we're not getting to talk about that are absolutely being touched by a lot of these same things, you know, casting in colorism and challenges with repertoire and confusions about where the audience is and why an audience isn't coming despite, you know, apparent requests for us to show up. These are things that aren't just about opera, aren't just about classical music. This is about how art is made and produced in a country that is not reckoned with its own demographics yet. And that's the thing that I think about a whole, whole lot. Um, so yeah, super excited to be here and you know, share a little bit about my life and my work, probably a lot about my cat since she is the unofficial fourth co-host of the show and probably also some free singing from my husband who frequently will be singing in the background. And um, <laughs> if I ever get a decent mic, <laughs> it will be picked up somewhere on these recordings. Uh, so yeah, that is Lee in a nutshell. What about you, Rocky? Well, before we get to me, I think it's also important that we mention that you are also the chief education officer at Lincoln yeah, Center. Just, just that little, <laughs> little That's fan. important. That's, That's important to mention. That's how I got this gig on the show because I, I knew somebody somewhere. <laughs> you had some friends in high places. Um, me? Oh gosh, I'm so boring. Um, no, I'm not. 
<laughs> um, <laughs> I am, my name's Rocky Jones, he, him. I'm an artist in a number of different disciplines, husband, father to the most beautiful kitty uh, in all the land, <laughs> uh, Sagittarian, avid homosexual uh, <laughs> uh, holding it down for the cis community on this podcast um and yeah i i think my uh, my day job is i'm the only one of the three of us who is still currently um at minnesota opera full-time and i'm the director of equity diversity and inclusion there and all of us in the EDI space or right now just a little <laughs> um but a big part of my job is making sure that um you know especially when it comes to the arts we are creating as i mentioned earlier much more accessible and equitable and inclusive spaces and so that's what i'm really um interested and excited about the thing that I always really loved about the score is when people would come up to me and be like, I got into this or I checked this out because I listened to the show and I heard three people who were like me, who found this really um, sort of so what I thought was like super esoteric and weird and not for me, whether it was, you know, a, a, a piece of music we were talking about or a particular artist we were were interviewing. Um, and that became an entry point um, for someone to discover something new and to really expand their horizons. And so that's what I really hope to do with this show. You know, I think the idea is not like, you know, it's called art class, but like, we're not the professors. Um, <laughs> we are, we are, we are your classmates. <laughs> you are our classmates and we're all in this and we're all learning together. So, you know, I'm not going to sit here and and lie. Um, I <laughs> <laughs> took some time off, certainly from the arts to pursue things uh, to pursue other interests of mine for a really long time for most of the the O's and teens. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, so I'm catching up and I'm learning about a lot of new things um, as well, right along um, with with everybody else. So, you know, I'll be the one who's sort of asking the basic questions like, like, and when you say X, Y, and Z, what does that mean? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, if this is, if you're worried that this is going to be, you know, a little, you know, not in your wheelhouse, there's absolutely an entry point. The arts is for everyone. And we really want to be here and, and open the space up so that, I don't know, not to sound maudlin, but the arts really changed my life, saved my life in a number of uh, different ways. And, and low periods in my life mm -hmm. um, and have uh, given me so much joy and helped me uh, learn and understand who I am. And so obviously I think that <laughs> it could work for everyone. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just, I'm just super excited that we have this platform to share the art that we all love and that we're all super interested in and, and hopefully put some people on. So, yeah. Yeah. That's me in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I'm a Sagittarius. Did I mention that? 
<laughs> you actually did, but it I is did. Okay. another Sagittarian. I know it's very Sagittarian to make sure we know it and to say yes. it again. Yes. again. Yes. So yeah. And I'm a Gemini rising, so I talk too much. <laughs> well, we have a jam-packed show for you today. Um oh my goodness, we have so many things for you today. Our good friend. Emily and Mettenbrink uh, coming Ooh. through with some of the exciting things that are happening in the arts world that you all can check out. We've got Lee's career day interview. I'm going to talk to someone in the arts about their job, perhaps, you know, someone that, you know, doesn't normally get a bit of shine. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and we have an incredible interview coming up with the I I don't even have words for how excited <laughs> I am about this interview with author, activist, multidisciplinary artist Janata Petrus. Um, yes. she was just incredible, and she's on to talk about her work, her 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 books. Uh, specifically uh, the stars and the blackness between them, which was actually on a uh, band book list a couple of years ago. Multiple multiple band book, list. Band book list. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. And you know, it was that good. <laughs> it was that good, <laughs> right? And of course, you know, a huge part of of you know our show is talking about arts education. And I think, you know, a discussion about book banning makes perfect sense, unfortunately. (laughs) Uh, You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. When you were talking about, you know, the lens that you bring to the show, I think one of the ones that I'm most interested in and that I often turn to is just the arts, people's response to the arts different types of arts in this case literary arts and like Mm -hmm. what that's saying about our time Mm -hmm. and also this kind of like dissonance between what is like valued and beautiful among the people versus you know powers that be and Mm -hmm. what's targeted by them and why and that's something that I really look forward to I mean, I look forward to everyone hearing with Janata mm. and the brilliant things she has to say. But I think over the course of the show overall, like when we're talking about the narratives that aren't uplifted, also like why? Why mm-hmm. why is that? Why have some of these things or some of this work, um, some of these people tried, why has the attempted erasure happened? So yeah, yeah that's the thing I think you'll hear from us quite a bit <laughs> over <laughs> over the season if we're if we're doing our job in art class and I think you know I come to class to think <laughs> I come to class to think and to learn things so and unfortunately I have a I have a feeling that um the world is going to give us a lot to talk about relative to some of that oh, yeah. this uh season of the show this semester oh um, yes of the show <laughs> <laughs> like Tyra didn't call them seasons she called them cycles we call them semesters, semesters. <laughs> <laughs> I, absolutely and one of the things that like I feel like we've been sort of talking around the last couple of years has been the the consequences continued consequences of everything that came after 
the murder of George Floyd and, and that whole inflection point. Um, and obviously the very complicated set of realities in which we exist today came about after hundreds of years of, of deliberately and intentionally constructed systems that have meant power resides in certain places and not in others and, and all of the consequences of that and the arts are frequently sort of wrapped in that and this intersection between the arts and school and and people's will is a very interesting one to me and if we think about like the history of why schools were created in this country in the first place public schools a lot of times people say it was to teach people how to read the bible it was actually to teach people what it meant to be an American citizen as defined by whomever was in control at that particular moment and being able to um, mandate what is and is not read is a very real part of how people not only define what your school experience is, but just what it means to be participating in the American polity right mm -hmm. and we are looking at something that in the last couple of years the there's been this real uptick since 2021 in book banning right and we haven't seen anything like it since the 40s um, and generally there are these things that are called cycles of outrage of outrage which happen about every 20 years or so where um, the sort of mainstream gets really animated around the idea that young people are are becoming interested in some new piece of technology or some new thing that runs counter to how they understand kids to to engage with the world right and they seek to ban things and sometimes it's been books or rock and roll or pinball or video games or or comic books but it's often books right because mm -hmm. ideas yeah. can be so threatening to people's ability to control right and to maintain power so where we really started to see it around 2021 was around race identity, right? Identity is always very uncomfortable and things about race in this country have consistently been over-policed, right? Anything having to do with race is gonna be over-policed here. And then secondarily around gender and sexuality. Again, nothing new. If you look at the cycles of what is banned, this frequently comes up. So like comic books were banned in the late forties. And there were a lot of concerns about whether or not Batman and Robin living together in their cute little cave was going to turn kids all over the country queer. Like, and this is like stuff you can look up. Is that Congress for real? Wow, wait. Wait, <laughs> very, that's for real? Very for real. <laughs> Congress investigated it. Actually, the first time Congress was on television was in April of 1954, and they were investigating comic books and their effect on delinquency um, and had wow. numerous experts testifying as to whether or not comics actually were making kids delinquents, um, turning kids queer, um making kids behave making nice white kids behave more like inner city black kids a thing you've never heard before right no, like these no. kinds of things were coming up then and this most recent round of books that have been banned it closely mirrors that as a matter of fact this comic book thing was interesting because they actually would burn they would collect and then burn comic books on school grounds in the 40s and early 50s so like these kind of like fascistic ways of controlling how people, especially young people, access art 
is not new, even a little bit. And the kinds of things that were getting banned, you know, conceptually paralleled the stuff that's getting banned now, you know, in addition to our guest, Janata Petrus, you know, folks like Alice Walker, um, Toni Morrison, James Baldwin, their work is banned because they are talking about race and gender and sexuality in ways that are deeply discordant with how people want to control how those roles come to be and what people think they can be, right? Mm. Um, so there, there's a lot here. And to be sure, it's not just books. Um, but the, the book thing, uh, I, don't, I don't know how we can profess to have the First Amendment be our First Amendment and then at the same time say, but I'm going to control what speech right. and which mm -hmm. ideas you even get to know exist, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's, a little, it's a little wild. It is truly wild, especially when I think about <laughs> how much books changed my life as a youngin. And, <laughs> and that's why I, I feel, yeah, books changed my life, introduced me to so much that was not being, not being talked about at all, or just had missing perspectives and holes in the narrative when I was young. So it's part of why I'm really excited to talk about, like, talk with Janata and for y'all to hear her because she's also specifically speaking to young people and writing towards towards them in her work. Um, she'll hear a lot, a lot about a lot of her, a lot of all of us reflecting on how <laughs> our younger selves felt seen and acknowledged. Yeah. yeah. Well, I say, why wait? <laughs> why wait we've been teasing all long enough <laughs> i'm still stuck on batman and robin but <laughs> but <laughs> while i ruminate on that y'all go ahead and enjoy this uh conversation that we had with janata petrus and we will be right back everybody welcome back to our class class is back in session and we are here for a fabulous conversation with the brilliant beautiful talented magical my friend janata petrus janata petrus yay welcome welcome I will read a short bio for her and then we'll get into it. Janata Petrus is a creative activist, writer, playwright, and multi-dimensional performance artist who was born on Dakota land, West Indian descended, and African sourced. Her work centers around Black wildness, futurism, ancestral healing, sweetness, speckle, and shimmer. She is the author of The Stars and the Blackness Between Them, winner of the 2020 Coretta Scott King Honor Book Award. Welcome! <laughs> I should add um, to my bio that I also have a kid's book out now called Can We Please Give the Police Department to the Grandmothers? Which I love and, that title so much. Yeah. <laughs> Is there something else that I would add? Oh, I also say that I'm a runaway witch and a cosmic bag lady and a soul sweetener. <laughs> so those are kind of my like official 
titles, titles, <laughs> as they say. <laughs> All of that and so much more. The um, a master storyteller. And speaking of stories, the stars and the blackness between them. We are all fresh after, you know, off of checking it out. Well, I've checked it out a while ago, but my co-host <laughs> here, you know, oh, we, I know we all have our reasons why it's important to us. So many identities that we all share in this room, being black, being queer. Um, but I would love to know specifically from you, like why you found it important to write this book. Why, why do you have to get this out there? Mm. That's a good question. Like why? Because I feel like so many times with artwork, it like, or art practices or art offerings, like it finds you, it conjures you and pulls you into itself. Um, so I feel like sometimes when I have to sort of orient myself in relationship to my artwork or my books, it's kind of like, Oh, they like really came to me and were like, girl, I need to tell you about me. And so, yeah, so in 2015, like I was doing a lot of um, kind of performance art that lived in like circus and puppet and mass um, spaces and all like living within Black storytelling and Black stories and queer stories and family stories and hood stories. And then, you know, this book idea or story idea came to me and really, yeah, I was like, oh, okay, cool. Like I just started writing it, um, but it just showed up as this little seed, like a black life, like two black lives that were dealing with life-threatening experiences. So one is the prison industrial complex. One is a literal like life-threatening illness and how we will look at the value and the worth of Black life differently depending on all kinds of things, right? Like part of that inspiration came from seeing when a young Black person or a Black person of any age, rather, once they were murdered in police custody, they automatically went on trial. It'd be like, well, what was that kid mm -hmm. doing beforehand? Or what do we know about them? Like, did they do anything? And it's like, wait a minute, who, what about who shot them? What about who was like supposed to be protecting them? So... But like, you know, we could have value for Black life in other ways where it's like, oh my gosh, this person is sick or this person is a superhero or this person is a, you know, sexy or I don't know, an athlete. So yeah, I think um, with uh, kind of being, I was really thinking about Black existentiality, Black ancestralness, Black sort of cosmologies um, and Black queer sexiness and love and like young <laughs> love and kind of that sort of ah, ah, he he like that first kind of like oh my gosh the person <laughs> yeah. type of love you know which I really wanted to see black queerness in like I, I was so rare um I didn't really see it so I think like a lot of young adult writers were writing books that felt very much like the ones we needed um oh, yeah absolutely oh yeah Mm. I do feel like my young self needed this book. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Very much. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like anybody who knows me well knows that um, I have been therapized <laughs> um, within an inch of my life. One of the tools that 
uh, my therapist gave me very, very early on in our work together was to think about, you know, in those moments when I'm not feeling worthy enough or I'm not feeling, you know, like my body looks the way it should or or whatever it is, um, that I go back to the time when I received that message as a child and I just hold that version of myself. And I love mm-hmm. on that version of myself. And reading this book really felt like that. It really felt like an expression of love to an earlier version of myself that really needed that at the time that felt very sort of confused and excited and a little fearful, um, but, you know, ultimately just needed that that love and that space to be like, you're okay and you're loved. So, I mean, thank you for that. And Janata, um could we talk a little bit about the response that the book has received in the couple of years since it's come out? Because I, I really found it um, fascinating and troubling in some ways, mm-hmm. some of the, the more negative responses to what is so clearly a story about love sort of fundamentally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in 2021, after Texas legislator Matt Krause, who was running for attorney general of the state at the time, included your work on the list of about 850 titles that needed to be investigated because they made students, uh, quote, feel discomfort, um, as if education is not about just that thing sometimes. Um, Kel Surprise, maybe 849 of the books on that list were about race and or sexuality. And in response, you said, I mean, schools promote white supremacists and call them our forefathers, people who enslave black people and who made wealth that generations are still living off of. And that's included in school, not in truthful ways. When I went to school, I had to read and learn about so many things that took me away from my truth and my beauty and the history of my ancestors. I was told things about black women that were harmful and incomplete. And kind of reading your novel, um, it, it was part of what was so beautiful about it, as, as everyone has just said, is that these are things that many of us live, but we almost never get to read about, right? Mm-hmm. So could you say a little bit about how the work might move towards creating a more complete story? Yeah, that's what I love about writing novels. It's like I get to sort of play and hang out and learn about all these different spirits. You know, my mentor, Alexis Duval, she calls like character spirits. So I was I'm like, yeah, these spirits. And I think a lot of what makes it acceptable to, in our society's eyes to oppress, to other, to destroy, to genocide people is once we're like, okay, those people are different. They're somehow less than, they're somehow problematic. And if those people were gone, or at least if they were oppressed, you know, and we were on top, um, then it's acceptable, right? So I feel like that's part of what these legislators are trying to do. If like, you don't get to know that, like, for example, in my book, that there's queerness everywhere in the world, mm-hmm. you know, there's so many sweet, beautiful relationships that can be had, you know, in consensual ways and soulful ways that are queer that, you know, even like my friends 
or people I know who are, you know, quote unquote straight. I don't know why I say that, but I say <laughs> quote unquote straight. <laughs> uh, are, you know, also talking about how this book kind uh, offered them an invitation to sensuality, you know, to having a very sensual, you know, sort of exploration with romance and with pleasure. Um, so anyway, so when you were reading that quote and they were like, you know, they don't want kids to feel uncomfortable. And I was like, what, what you mean? Give them little tingly feelings, <laughs> like little tingly sort of like, well, what does that mean? What does it mean when my tummy feels that way? Oh, this character Mabel is feeling this way with this girl. And, you know, she has all these reflections and it's not so much about gender as much as it is about desire and pleasure and, you know, like. Audrey Lord, who happens to be on my shirt, mm-hmm. um, talking about, yes. you know, and the uses of the erotic is that when you are connected to your desire, you are just, you know, positioning yourself in a way that you can't be forced into oppression or a half-life. It becomes mm-hmm. the thing that guides you. And so, yeah, I think that in addition to them saying it's about race and about sexuality, it's also about this, you know, kind of divine desire to live in a world that is more expansive and loving and nourishing and respectful and collective and all of these things that in addition to being, you know, homophobic and anti-Black and racist, these people don't want us to know our true roots, our ancestry, our indigeneity, you know, even as stolen black people you know we come from indigeneity you know on the continent not these people who are like oh i'm cherokee and black but i don't know about y'all but there's also <laughs> us as people of african descent who are like oh yeah when you go to africa which you know my wife is cameroonian you know we just came back from zanzibar and tanzania and seeing how people who are from their ancestral land how they are in relationship with their land and also how those lands are being extracted from and, you know, um, are still living within colonial imperial settlerism oppression, you know, where it's like all the rich white folks from Europe get to come and, you know, have the bomb time while everybody else is like, you know, living. So anyways, back to these people trying to ban my book. It's like, you know, if you read my book, you're going to be sipping on some truth. (laughs) If you read my book, you're going to be feeling some feelings. And so, like, you know, if you ain't read my book, keep my book's name out your mouth. So there's that. (laughs) And um, I also think that it just tickles me that, you know, these folks are so scared and they should be scared because there's something that, like, is on its way out in regards to the ways that they've been in position and power because people don't want to live in that flat, raggedy, dry, ashy reality. No more. <laughs> no more, master. No more. May I may I ask a quick follow-up about that? Cause I I I, I love where you're going with this, because I often wonder like why right like why in their heads like mm-hmm. I, like i can always sort of follow the the actual rationale and when i picked up the the book 
I, I knew the broader context around the bannings. So like I, I read it understanding that, that people had some kind of problem when they read it, when I read it. So I read every single page, even the acknowledgements. I never read the acknowledgements because <laughs> I feel like they're, they're always not always my business, right? Everything right. that you wrote was so beautifully poetic. Were you surprised that people had this reaction to a story of about two people just loving each other? I mean, I think I was surprised, actually. I mean, I think once I saw the other books that were banned, you know, I was like, oh, y'all be banning some bad bitches. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> like y'all, y'all really be banning some bad. So I felt flattered low key. You know what I'm saying? I felt flattered. But then it also was like, um, I think also, too, it's like, you know, who thought Donald Trump would ever be president? Like, there's some things that you kind of have to be like, okay, (laughs) let me not be so ha ha he he about some stuff that like it comes and slaps me upside the head and in the face, you know? So I think there is a part of me that's like, oh, like my homegirl was like, girl, I didn't know your book was banned. Oh, they messing with your coin, you know? Mm. And I was like, oh, I guess I didn't think about that. You know, and I don't know. Mm how that looks like or what have you. Um, I feel like there's some people who, you know, obviously their books have still been amazing, even if their books have been banned, you know, like Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, James Ball, you know, all of these greats. And then also other people like KSA Lehman and, you know, folks whose work I really love. So, yeah. So I think I was surprised and also being like, wow, you know, let me not underestimate you know, what it means, you know, besides the like, you know, the way it impacts my career, you know, what like, like, for example, I was on book tour with my kids book and I was in Miami, which, you know, obviously is in the state of Florida. And um, I met, you know, a math teacher who um, had to put all of the queer books, a queer math teacher, all of her queer books into a little cabinet that's like off to the side that she closes the door, but kind of leaves it open a crack because she can't have the queer books out, but mm. she has them available, you know? Um, but if she were to be found out, she could lose her job. I met two people there who'd, you know, in that time frame, had lost their gender affirming healthcare. So that there's ways that, you know, these laws and these ways of othering and positioning power and privilege you know, people are very serious about maintaining it, you know, and part of it is these, you know, knowledge wars and getting people to be afraid and to be idiots anyway. So, yeah. So just back to that, like, yeah, being in Florida, I was like, OK, it's it's very tangible because I also met with teens, you know, like uh, LGBTQ teens and, you know, like BIPOC teens who are like doing leadership development with um a couple of youth organizations whose names I don't remember right now. Um, but like talking to like young trans kids and queer kids who are growing up in Florida right now. And yeah, they're in Miami, which is like so queer, so Caribbean, so BIPOC, but also is as is adjacent to a lot of these restrictive, conservative, backwards laws and, you know, ways of thinking. So, yeah, uh, it just makes me so sad when I think about it. Um, but it, gives me hope when I think about um, artists such as yourself who are creating spaces um, 
that these conversations um, can happen. And so you mentioned some bad bitches earlier. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm curious, you know, especially given your Caribbean and West Indian heritage, you've got uh, a couple of uh, bad bitch uh, Caribbean West Indians here on the call. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about um, sort of your your heritage, your ancestry, and how that um, has influenced your work as well. Yeah. So yes, my mother's Trinidadian and my father's Crucian from St. Croix. And, um, and I'm Black American. You know, I was born in Minneapolis. And um, there's a lot of ways that like growing up, I didn't really track that my parents were immigrants, you know, just we were all black. It was all in the hood. And I was teased because I acted like an Oreo, which I was like, OK, I think it's just because my <laughs> accent was different because everybody in Minneapolis who's black, a lot of people are from Chicago. They're from Milwaukee. You know, they're from like that uh, southern migration through the Midwest. And I was like the random West Indian, you know? So, um, yeah, I think for me, my parents felt like their own, just from their own, you know, countries that, I mean, they literally were, but it was like their existence felt so foreign in that, I was born in Minneapolis, Midwest, one of the coldest, snowiest places. And they're from the islands, you know, surrounded in water. And I'm in the Midwest surrounded by earth, no. <laughs> plains, cornfields, <laughs> you know. And I'm, Minneapolis is the land of 10,000 lakes, but that ain't no ocean. Mm -hmm. And um, so I feel like there's a lot of ways that my parents you know, kind of origin being in places that are surrounded by water that feel very much like their own sort of universes, but very small places. My dad, I mean, St. Croix is pretty small. Trinidad is like pretty cosmopolitan in a lot of ways. And, you know, there's parts of it that's very country and rural, but, you know, Port of Spain, love until where my mom is from is like the hood is like, you know, real, you know, concrete jungle. Um, so, yeah, I feel like they also are of the Windrush generation, which I just learned about, um, which is the generation of West Indian kids whose parents moved to the States or to Toronto or to New York and left them in the islands to be raised by whomever was left behind. And, you know, both my parents, you know, were that like they weren't really raised by their parents until they were like in their teens, you know? So there's ways that they have all that childhood trauma where I'm like, y'all know who raised y'all. Oh, nobody. Oh, auntie? oh, your grandparents, maybe, you know, but like, yeah. So it's sort of, I think the old, so how this lives into my storytelling is a couple of ways, like dialect. Like I think, from a young age, I knew that my mom spoke like a Trini. My dad spoke like a Krujan, you know, and that's not even how Krujans would speak. Krujans is like Krujan, you know, Krujan. Like that there's a difference to the islands. Like as much as like, I think there'd be this kind of, oh, this Jamaican, like everybody was Jamaican growing up. In, when <laughs> If they were Caribbean, they were Jamaican, right? But to have a Trini mom and a Krujan father, you know, and that they have a sense of, 
how they think both of the each other is something is wrong with the other island. It's like something's wrong with y'all Trinis, <laughs> something's wrong with y'all Crucians, you know? But somehow they ended up together. And that I was a Yankee, you know what I mean? That I was born here, that like us, me as an American kid, I ain't understand this, that, and the other. And that all of the black kids were like from Chicago. And I just wanted to be from Chicago. That's all I wanted. Because then I would fit in. <laughs> My parents wouldn't have me looking all like West Indian and from the thrift store and from Marshalls and all, you know what I mean? Like there's just ways that my Caribbean identity wasn't like my friends, like my best friend, he's from Queens, right? So he was surrounded by West Indians, you know what I mean? Like, but me being from Minnesota, being West Indian, I felt like an anomaly, you know? So actually moving to New York was an opportunity for me to be like, oh, be connected with the Caribbean diaspora um, in a way. So anyways, I think like back to my book, like I think my characters are navigating that multi-diaspora lineage, you know, because I think that there's a lot of like my Brooklyn friends who are just straight black American, but they like, I'm basically Jamaican, you know what I'm saying? I'm from, you know, <laughs> you know, like just the ways that our diaspora is not as uh what's the word compartmentalized. Like, I think there's a lot of ways where it's like, Oh, we're black Americans and Oh, we're Caribbean and Oh, we're from the continent. And, and all of that stuff is very like, those provincial aspects are very real. And I think there's so much ways that we are constantly, constantly borderless that we, as people, like when I'm in the Caribbean, I feel like I'm in the South. When I'm in the South, I feel like I'm in the islands. When I'm in Brooklyn, I feel like I'm in Trini, you know, like there's just so much like limitlessness we hold within geography and within our embodiments and our, you know, diaspora and dialects. So yeah, so when I write, I definitely like to have my characters sound like the story of who they are, you know, and where they're from. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of my, you know, <laughs> kind of answer. But well, tell me about the island ancestry on this call, like which, how, like where y'all connected? So my family is from Barbados on both sides. Okay, Bayesian and the mm, house. That's me. And I am Jamaican, as you can see in this lovely background uh, behind <laughs> me, which does not look like the Jamaica that I know, but I just really like the background. <laughs> <laughs> You wanted the vibe of the weather. You wanted the yes. vibe of Jamaica. Yeah. Oh, honey. <laughs> no, it is it is necessary. Yes. I, I love what you said about just like blackness. I think always transcending borders and space and time in, in so many ways. And the other thing I love about like your work and the way you speak, even just on this call, is that I feel that same like limitlessness across like generations mm. of especially like black feminists, artists, writers, thinkers like, yes, you're very, very much in the lineage of the bad bitches who were banned with you, like very much. <laughs> yes. And I hear you mentioning like a, your mentor, Alexis DeVoe. And like, I, I want to know who else are you really like speaking to uh, mentors, ancestors or speaking with in your work and as you move through the world? Yeah, like I definitely think 
June Jordan is one that like I love, I think because she's so love, so about love, so about yes. um and and love as a practice of revolutionary inspiration, you know, that we can't just love, but we have to activate our radical and our energy towards transformation and change for each other and um Alexis Duval and actually June Jordan were friends you know and uh June Jordan and I have the same birthday and also she's of Caribbean mm-hmm. heritage so there's a lot of ways that I love kind of tracking queer Caribbeanness you know because I think so many ways we're told that oh you know we're not queer we're not gay if you're gay it's because you're confused and you know what have you like we're taught that we don't exist and if we do exist we're an anomaly and we're confused so to get to you know witness June Jordan's work and seeing the kinds of passion um and kind of lyricalness like I think there's an aspect of like you know Caribbean writing that really is like playful with language I think that's Black diaspora language period like you know, wherever we are, whether it's the South, whether it's Harlem, or, like there's ways that we play with, we just play with our words, with our sayings, with, you know, what have you, like, you know, oh, it couldn't have been me. You know, like there's just certain, you know, euphemisms and um, whatnot. You know, Lucille Clifton um, is also somebody who I love, who I feel is such a witchy conjurer, playful juicy Mm -hmm. i love juicy ancestors (laughs) um i think uh i don't know like it's interesting speaking of juicy ancestors it's kind of like a person whose music i listen to like i listen to a lot of marvin gay and i'm not a singer i'm not a musician or what have you i mean i i have musical you know um artistry and stuff like from growing up and whatnot but anyways just like really feeling all of that emotion and that like eroticism through falsetto and sensuality and I think black complexity I think like I was thinking about uh uh, I mean obviously black blues women you know like I think about also like black calypsonians femme calypsonians I'm thinking of all of these um sort of black women through time and space especially through the experience of enslavement have been able to maintain conversations with sexual agency and uh radical resistance so yeah, like I feel that as a writer and as a creative, I, I very much identify with witchy, runaway witchy type of energy, sensual energy, people who want to f- it up and heal it up. And yeah, and like pleasure forward things, you know, like definitely um, even the book I'm writing right now is very much about, you know, it's a young adult novel again, um, but it's very much lives in the 90s which has a different kind of I don't know like that 90s queer adolescent energy hit different you know what I'm saying so that's you know I guess what I'm channeling even referencing all these people these people's work and just like the love and expansiveness that's in it like it doesn't try to be to itself it always wants to like speak to us and make connections and 
it's interesting when other people think it's trying to do the opposite. I feel <laughs> so much love and connection yeah. and lineage and community um, from just what these people put into the world, what people like you, what Alexis puts into the world, what June Jordan put into the world. Yeah. Um, I'll say. Well, Lee mentioned um, your upcoming project. And so I would love to know more about that and what you're working on and what's coming up. Yay. Okay, cool. <laughs> Glad you asked. Because <laughs> I am really in love with my new um, project. It's called Black Circus. And it's all 90s Black queer, you know, intensity, juicy angst. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's about a young Black woman who sort of is trying to find herself through these, you know, different circles of Blackness in Minneapolis um, while dealing with her parents and their um, fallout over um, her dad um, having kids with this white lady and leaving her mom and which is a very Minneapolis narrative. And, um, but then she finds this group of kind of um, multi-generational black queer folks. One of which is this black uh, elder who's a former circus artist who takes this young woman under her wing. And um, there's this other subplot um, that talks about a old school black circus. This is a black circus that's fictional, but its origin story is based off a true event. So it's this underground black kind of magical queer circus um, that was started after a lynching in Duluth, Minnesota. Um, so there was an actual lynching in Duluth, Minnesota in 1920. That was literally 100 years before George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. So this lynching happened of three black men who were laborers who were traveling with the circus and they were accused of rape, you know, falsely accused. And, you know, of course, I believe the victim, but like there was evidence that she was actually lying on these on this group of black men, you know, that and they just picked three black men and lynched them. And it's like there's this kind of dichotomy and, you know, sort of I'm from this, you know, I'm from Minnesota, I'm from the Midwest there's this way that we like to be like, oh, the South is where people are racist. The North is where people are, you know, where people went to get freedom. We gave these people their freedom, you heard? Mm -hmm. um, and <laughs> I feel like as a Black Midwesterner, I have witnessed so much racism, so much ways that people try to evade actual accountability and um, curiosity mm -hmm. and... Um, about the impact of race in, you know, Black lives and the way that anti-Blackness exists in Minneapolis. I think particularly because there's so much like, um, there were so many interracial relationships and mixed kids like when I was growing up. So it's that's been an interesting thing to write about is the ways that, you know, like I grew up in a time where to be like light and essentially not Black, you know, was what was desired when it came to femmes. And I felt very like ugly. I felt very invisible. I felt very not desired. And um, I ended up moving to New York in my early twenties and really got a whole different experience of feeling beautiful, of feeling seen and desired. And 
I realized like I just had such a complex growing up in Minneapolis around not being worthy and beautiful and all these mm-hmm. things. And so this book has been interesting in me really addressing that conversation because I think that there's a way that when Black femmes who aren't mixed or who aren't light or even those who are light who talk about colorism, I think there's this way that people don't want to have that conversation or they feel like it's divisive or what have you. But, you know, when I think of all of these families, like, you know, my dad, he had, you know, and this all oh, this is based off of uh, partly based off of my life. You know, I'm like, Mama, you may not want to read this book because you might want to <laughs> suit me. Um, some uh, story, little embellishments I put in there. Um, but like, yeah, you know, my dad, when I was eight and nine, had like uh, two kids with a white woman, my two younger brother and sister. And, you know, I just remember at that time when he had that family he was just kind of being with that family more, you know, I mean, these are my siblings, obviously, but he was taking my brother and sister to go hang out with his brother. Like my cousins watched my younger siblings. It felt like my dad had like, you know, moved on up, you know? And I think there is this thing around how I absorbed her and made meaning of that. That is a thing that I'm still unpacking, you know? And I think that there's a lot of Black femmes I talk to from Minneapolis in particular who talk about this feeling of like, and I, I don't think it's just Minneapolis Black femmes, you know, um, or Black, or it doesn't even have to be femmes. It could be a lot of us, you know, who mm-hmm. were not given a reflection of how beautiful and sexy and desirable and gorgeous we are. I grew up in a city where I don't think like Black people loved ourselves in a certain kind of way mm-hmm. that I really do get mm-hmm. curious about, you mm-hmm. know, um, and how like as a young person, um, and this exists in the book too, the places I actually did find like a sense of self-worth were like these black conscious spaces, these like quote unquote would be considered hotep spaces, but them hotep spaces, yeah, they was homophobic. Yeah, they was femphobic. They was all of those things. <laughs> but in Minneapolis in the 90s, it was the one place where it was like queen, sister, da, 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 you know? So that's also kind of a thing I'm exploring is like these black enclaves that kind of have been flattened. Like I do think there's genuine critique to be had with like, you know, uh, some of these Black consciousness folks. But I also think there was a lot of wisdom and a lot of affirmation that like also existed in these spaces that I found. So talking about all of that complexity, you know, is this book, it literally is a Black circus, you know? So, yeah. Wow. (laughs) That sounds incredible. And so... I'm looking at the clock. I wish we could have this conversation all afternoon. (laughs) I could sit here and listen to you talk about your work all afternoon. But where can people find you? Where can people find more uh, news and information about Black Circus and all of your other incredible work? Yeah, so um, I'm currently on Instagram. Uh, at Janata. Um, I also have a Patreon that I'm about to drop real soon, like in the next week. Um, and I'm going to be blogging from there. And that's going to be more where I'm going to be keeping my work 
moving forward besides my published work. Um, my books are both at any, wherever fine books are sold. That's what I say. <laughs> wherever fine books are sold. Um, yeah. So I love a good independent bookstore. I love a good black owned, feminist owned, radical owned bookstore. Mm-hmm. So any of those in your community, big them up. But yeah, your library have my book. I also started a consulting business recently for creatives and just like thinkers and makers or businesses, whatever, called um, EBT, Creative Consulting. Um, And EBT stands for (laughs) Explorative Black Tarot. So yeah, that's been like my way of helping creatives do, you know, what they're here to do, which is make magical healing things um and i also teach a lot of creative classes um out of embodied astrology which is sort of you know where i teach about the intersections of creative practice and astrological practice so yeah that's like yeah go to janata.com you know holla at me have me speak in your school, snuggle me, <laughs> think about me, write about yes. me. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Everybody go check out Janata.com. We'll put links to all of that stuff in the show notes and uh, run Janata some coins, please. Um, that would be amazing year of tenderness. <laughs> uh, but Janata, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and this was such an honor to to speak with you and to uh, have such a, a juicy conversation. Mm. <laughs> <Truly>. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you all so much. Y'all are the best. And we will be right back with the morning announcements with our good friend, Emily Mettenbrink. Hello, classmates. My name is Emily Mettenbrink. I am a violinist and performer with a passion for collaboration and creativity in the arts. Each episode, I will be bringing you the morning announcements. This will be a short list of events and experiences, both live and virtual, that we think are cool and maybe you should check out. This week, if you've been turned on by the conversation with Janata Petrus and you're inspired to seek out some more literary arts and artists pushing bold topics of conversation, Here are a few suggestions from art class happening in New York City and virtually within the next two weeks. Lincoln Center's inaugural poet-in-residence, Mahogany L. Brown, continues her seen, sound, scribe series, curating thought-provoking and often politically-driven evenings of spoken word, spirited conversation, and presentations of new work. The January 20th iteration of the series features recitation and interviews with the poet and NEA fellow Nicole Seeley, who will discuss her latest collection, The Ferguson Report and Erasure, followed by poet Oliver De La Paz, who will be reading from his National Book Award long-listed collection, The Diaspora Sonnets. DJ Jive Poetic will be bringing the jams throughout the evening. This event takes place January 20th at 7.30 p.m., in the David Rubenstein Atrium. Next, join Peabody and Emmy award-winning correspondent at NBC News, Antonia Hilton, for the launch of her new book, Madness, Race and Insanity in a Jim Crow Asylum. 
Joining Antonia in conversation is fellow award-winning NBC News anchor and co-host of the third hour of today, Craig Melvin. This event will be hosted by the Strand Bookstore, January 25th at 7 p.m. Finally, New York Public Library presents Spectral Evidence, Gregory Pardlow with Amani Perry in conversation. This is an in-person and live-streamed event. Spectral Evidence is Gregory Pardlow's first major collection of poetry after winning the Pulitzer Prize for his poetry book titled Digest. This new collection compels us to consider how we think about devotion, beauty, arts, justice, the criminalization and death of Black bodies, and how these have been inscribed into our present, our history, and the Western canon. He will discuss his book with Professor Imani Perry. This event takes place January 30th, 6 p.m. at the Stephen A. Schwartzman Building, or you can find it online at the New York Public Library YouTube channel. If you'd like more information on any of these events, check out the links in the show notes. I'll be back next time with more cool live art for you to experience. Bye, friends. And we're back for our first ever career day. We have a wonderful guest with us this afternoon. Guest, what is your name? Hi, my name is Nathan Horowitz. And where are you located? I live in Los Angeles. What's your current job? I work as a Hollywood stuntman. Oh, what do you do in this line of work? Mostly fighting and falling over and getting thrown around a lot. <laughs> How long have you been doing this? I, funny enough, just got a Google update from my first training video six years ago. Oh, so wow. I've lived in LA going on four years now and had a couple of years of experience in Chicago before moving out here. Oh, so how did you train for it and for how long? How long is an interesting question because I grew up playing make-believe make with my friends and <laughs> pretending that we were Naruto characters running around and uh, fighting each other and coming up with their own stories. So if you count that as training, then maybe the majority of my life. But <laughs> I started studying martial arts when I was young. My parents were both martial artists. They, My mom taught in the U.S. and in Israel. And hmm. then I went to school. I went to college in Chicago for acting and stage combat at Columbia College Chicago. And uh, went through their program, spent the whole four years there, graduated, and then moved out to LA to focus a little bit more on screen fighting. And I've been here for three going on four years, specifically focusing on just stunt work. That is awesome. And can you talk a little bit about how you studied it in school? What did that look like? Yeah. So I would wake up, I would go to improv, then I would go to math, and then I would <laughs> dash across campus to pick up swords and sling some steel for an hour and a half. We studied Shakespeare and sword fighting and unarmed combat. I was very lucky to have incredible teachers and peers, and I tested at the top of my class while I was there. I became a teaching assistant for a couple of semesters while I was there and learned the different styles for the different weapons and then put my own flair into it. So could you say a little bit about what the 
what a day in the life of a Hollywood stunt person looks like? Well, right now it's waking up at 4.50 in the morning to Ooh. drive an hour away, train from 6 a.m. till 9 a.m., sometimes till 12 p.m., come home, eat, go lift weights at the gym to make sure I'm staying in shape, and then rinse and repeat the next day. But training sessions differ a lot, and uh, they also differ a lot from what the actual job is while you're on set. A day on set can vary from taking a single reaction, one fall, helping people move mats, helping teach actors, to maybe you're on set for six months, you're part of a core team, you're building the choreography, you're working with the fight coordinator and the stunt coordinator who are working with the director to completely create the vision for the action. So what kinds of misconceptions do people have about your job? I think people assume it doesn't hurt. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it does <laughs> to a certain extent. Um, you know, we can diminish the possibility for injury and we can diminish the risk but we can't completely take it out of the equation you know but that's why we train so often and so rigorous rigorously um so that we can be safe and perform well while we're on set usually when i tell people that i do stunts they're like do a flip and i'm like <laughs> pay me money um but <laughs> you know so not every stuntman does tricking not every man fights or you know not everyone drives not everyone does fire or rigging everyone's a little bit different and you are always pulling and learning from different individuals so yeah. do you have any upcoming projects or other endeavors that you'd like to share with our classmates? Can't talk about projects necessarily. <laughs> I am working on my acting chops. So I am both writing and producing, directing and acting in a short film this upcoming oh. spring, which is very exciting. So hopefully you can tear me apart on that and tell me how I did. I'll send it over to you and get, get your feedback. You know me so well. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's really important that stuntmen can also act because we are actors, right? Yeah. We just don't always get paid to say lines. But if you can both act and, you know, be a really good stuntman, it just makes you more marketable, which I think is important especially moving forward in this industry and uh, outside of stunts and doing my best to say things um, <laughs> and get paid to do so. I work as a personal trainer, run an online business and connect with people. have had the pleasure of connecting with people across the globe and across the United States to help them with their health and fitness. It's called Stronger by Stunts. I don't make people do stunts, but <laughs> later down the line, I would like to gear it towards actors and stuntmen uh, to make sure that we are healthy and strong and can deliver the most uh, pristine performance possible. But right now, I am open to training everyone. That's a beautiful thing because who amongst us doesn't need training? 
But Nathan, super excited about everything you've shared. This sounds absolutely amazing. Can't wait to check out the film. But before I let you go, I'm so curious. Could you share with us why your line of work should not be replaced by AI? Man, I don't think any line of work should be replaced. <laughs> <laughs> Me specifically? Um, wow. I think when we talk about the nuance of character choices and performance, whether it be in theater and acting and music and writing, there are only certain corrections and insights that people have. And that's from us gaining experience. Mm. So yes, AI is a wonderful tool that can learn in time, but it's never going to be able to make the same choices that we make right? It, it'll never have that human touch to it. It's, it can make our lives easier when necessary, but it can't completely replace us. You know, I watched every episode of Westworld, so I really hope yeah. you're right. About that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Nathan. This was a Wonderful conversation. And next up, we've got Pure Black Joy. All right, we are back and it is time for our last segment of the show before we all let you go, before that final bell rings. <laughs> um, so this is a tradition that we uh, carried over from the score. And we just like to end the show on just a note of joy because there is so much nonsense and insanity happening in the world that no matter, you know, what topics we're talking about, it's really important to end the show just on a note of joy because, you know, especially like in the work that I do, if there's no joy, um, if we can't point out those moments of joy, what is the point <laughs> of doing <laughs> all of this? Um, and so we call this segment Pure Black Joy or PB&J, um, a little snack for your soul. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, maybe all of us collectively have a moment of pure black joy or individually we all have a moment of pure black joy. But I think this week we're going to do individual. So, Lee, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, yeah. Um... My Pure Black Joy this week is right on theme. It comes to us from a really wonderful writer and educator right here in New York City, Cleaver Cruz, a Black, queer, Dominican, American writer and educator, um, has a brand new book out, just came out December 19th. It is called The Black Joy Project, um, and it focuses on sharing moments of pure, unadulterated, visual Black joy from around the globe, over a hundred images that capture the ways that we as Black people thrive in the face of systemic oppression and how that joy remains an essential act of our resistance and a source of our resilience. So go out and get you a copy. It is available in the words of Janata Petrus, 
everywhere fine books are sold and go out and get you one of these visual love letters to how it is that Black people thrive all over the world. Yes, absolutely. Yes, 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 yes. Well, somebody understood the assignment this week. (laughs) (laughs) Teacher's pet. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, mine is also, you know, literary related. Uh, You know, I I did the homework to the best of my abilities. Um, (laughs) Some of you may be familiar with the young adult novel series, Children of Blood and Bone by Tomi Mm. Adeyemi. Yes. And I I loved the book. I, I loved it for my younger self who just loved anything fantasy related and to have it be black focus but now my older self loves it because it represents the some black spiritual traditions orisha the orisha tradition that is you know from stemming in nigeria but honored by black folks all over the diaspora now especially in places like brazil cuba here in the u.s too and you know i'm a practitioner at african traditional religions so to have a young adult book that represents those traditions and is out there is wonderful but it's in case you didn't know in case you love the book like me but didn't know there is a movie coming out it has oh. been yeah in the works in fact i believe homegirl has a has a deal for both the books to be adapted oh, into movies wow. already um but the first one is on the way and it was just announced that gina prince bythewood would be the yes. director okay Yes, I am so excited. So if you are not familiar with her work, she worked on The Woman King, was at the helm of that project. Shout out to The Woman King, justice for The Woman King, still to this day. <laughs> we all know to not get the attention it deserved. <laughs> um, also Secret Life of Bees, uh, the Black classic Love and Basketball. So... Children of Blood and Bone is just such an epic story. And Gina Prince, by the Woods' work is just already, I think, fabulous and clearly made it into this, the Black classic film collection. So I know this is set to be epic and I'm very, very excited. Yay. Yay. (laughs) I did not know you were a fan of the series, Paige. The third book in the series is coming out. This spring or this summer, so I'm I'm super excited about it. Didn't know about the movie. This this yes. changes everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it's my turn. Um, well, in typical fashion, if anybody knew me as a student, I was the king of uh, doing my homework um, right before it was supposed to be turned in. So, <laughs> um, but you know, I, I don't know if mine is super on theme necessarily, but um, at the risk of sort of sounding like Lady Gaga and her whole 100 people in a room story, um, mine is just really that we get to do this um, and we get to be together um, every couple of weeks and catch up and, you know, bring the arts and arts education to all these people. And especially um, at an institution like Lincoln Center, I went to college in New York City. 
And whenever I was lonely or I was sad or, you know, whatever, I would go down to that Tower Records that was at 66 <laughs> and Broadway. <laughs> and I was too poor to actually be able to buy any CDs or anything. So I would just sit in the listening or stand at the listening station and listen to music and just sort of look over at Lincoln Center and be like, you know, someday, maybe hopefully. And, you know, it took me 20 years, <laughs> um, but we're here and we made it and we're doing it. And it's so exciting to be able to do this show for such an amazing organization and to do it with the two of you. And it's just like, I don't know, it's just kind of amazing. It just kind of blows my mind. So that just makes me really happy. And yeah, I hope it makes you really happy too. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody said yes, but okay. <laughs> well, we just, that brings us to the end of the show. And we just want to thank all of you out there for joining us for our first episode of our class. You know, like I said, this is a dream come true. And we will be back in two weeks with another episode. And uh, I don't know, Paige, do you want to give a little bit of a... A little tease, a reality bond tease. Ooh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things you'll be hearing about throughout the season and starting next episode is Black folks and folk music. Ooh. What is our connection to it? If you don't think of us as connected to it, why is that? <laughs> <laughs> but for real, getting into getting into the roots, getting into actually its connections, in case you didn't know, to our family across the African diaspora and to our root on the continent as well. And just how that has evolved through the years. You know, we'll talk to to folks about history, but also folks who are, are currently who are currently performing folk music, documenting it, documenting Black folks' relationship to it specifically, and how they're showing other Black folks how to preserve that part of our cultural heritage. So I'm very excited. Yes, Ooh. we're all very excited. Can't wait to hear that. And um, I think that's it. I think that's all we got, unless I'm forgetting anything. Any words of wisdom, y'all, before we leave? Mm -hmm. Oh, I have one. Oh, oh, you do? oh, awesome. Subscribe to Art Class, please, wherever fine <laughs> podcasts are aggregated. <laughs> It'll make your life better. <laughs> there I go. agree. Okay. I agree. That's very, very that would be very wise. <laughs> yes. Yes. Incredibly wise. All right. So that's it. And we uh, will see you all in two weeks. Thanks, Paige. Thanks, Lee. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And thanks uh, to me and to, <laughs> <laughs> and to Lincoln Center and, and everyone who uh, helps us put the show together. Uh, we'll see you later. Easy, everybody. Class dismissed. Class dismissed. Class dismissed. That's hey. it. Good job. Class dismissed. <laughs> Thank you so much for checking out Lincoln Center's art class. The show is hosted by Lee Bynum, Paige Reynolds, a.k.a. Mabole Inawale, and me, Rocky Jones. The show is produced and edited by yours truly. 
Our artwork is by Pat Morin, and our music is Dope Skeletons by Frequently Asked Music. If you enjoyed what you heard, you can really help us out by telling all of your people about the show, subscribing on your podcast platform of choice, and yes, leaving us a positive review wherever you're listening, but especially on Apple Podcasts. It's a small act, but it really, really helps us out, and we just might read your review on air. If you'd like to learn more about the show, please visit the art class page at lincolncenter.org, follow all of Lincoln Center's various social media profiles, and feel free to reach out to us anytime at artclasspod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time, and until then, class is dismissed.